Amen. Good song this morning. Appreciate that. Would you join me in uh, Romans chapter 7 this morning? Romans chapter 7. Uh, We are two weeks from when we were last in this book, so as is normal, we always do some review. We'll do a little extra this morning. Um, Romans chapter 7. In a few minutes, uh, we'll read the text, verses 7 through 13. So we'll be reading that in a little bit. But before we do, I want you to already take a sneak peek at verse 11 because I want you to see a quick phrase there. Look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 7. So again, this is just by way of introduction. Paul says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. Sin, if we shorten the sentence, deceived me. I want everybody to listen for a second. Listen carefully. Sin is a deceiver. Sin lies. Sin fools me. Sin fools you. Your sin deceives you. My sin deceives me. If you're old enough, you've already learned this. You may not have put it in these words, but you've learned this truth. Past decisions have present consequences. You learned that yet? Past decisions have present consequences. We could word that another way. Let's bring it home today. Say, yeah, I'm feeling some effects. Catch this. Current decisions will have future consequences. Decisions will be made right here this morning or not made and they will have future consequences just like past decisions have present consequences. You mark it down. You know, someone said, you get to choose your sin, but you don't get to choose your consequences. I'm going to do this. Well, here's what goes with that. No, 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 I I don't want that. I don't want A or B. C's not too bad. You don't get to pick, right? Sin is a deceiver. Sin makes really big promises and delivers pain. Paul says, sin deceived me. We could give a thousand illustrations. Let me point out just a few of the obvious. Sin promised someone that a marital affair would satisfy and bring the excitement and fulfillment that their life needs. That's what it promised. But it's left a trail of destruction. And if they would have known the pain it caused them, their spouse, if they would have seen the kids crying and hyperventilating when they're told, mom and dad are not going to live together, all of your your tomorrows are just crushed and dashed. If they would have seen that, man, I never would have done this. Well, sin doesn't tell you that part. Hey, right here in Anderson County, I don't know her name, there's a young girl. Not very old. She believed a lie a few months ago and now she's pregnant. And she knows abortion's wrong, but she's really thinking about it as an option. And so she's going to, because sin begets more sin, she's kind of thinking, that'll do the least damage and maybe mom and dad won't even know and just a few of my closest friends and it won't interrupt my life. She believed a lie. She was deceived. This morning, Anderson County is full of people. Some of you could give testimony to this. Alcohol lied to them. A drug lied to them. And where they're at today, I promise you, our county is full of people who are this morning, this morning, while you're sitting here, they're in a dark pit. It is so dark down there. 
And their family is in turmoil and they have financial loss they never would have dreamed. Not just direct loss indirectly because they can't get or keep a job. And that's not even counting what it's doing to them physically. But here's the thing. Before they got in that deep pit, they were already having some family turmoil and they were already having some financial struggles and they were already battling another thing over here and this particular alcohol or drug promised I'm the remedy to those things. And it lied. Sin deceived me, Paul said. Even Paul was deceived by his sin. This morning, there's many, many people addicted to pornography even though they were warned that it makes slaves and it atrophies your soul. But I guess they thought they were the exception. And they got sucked in by its power. And they were deceived. So Jeff, why are you hitting verse 11 before you even read the text? We need to be rid of our sin. It pulls us down. It leads to a destructive life. It lies. It deceives. Whatever is possible, whatever it takes, we need delivered from our sin. You have to be delivered from your sin. I said we'd have a little bit of a lengthy introduction this morning I want to go back and revisit I won't reread verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 but I want to get us our minds thinking that way is there any hope to be delivered from sin here's the good news Romans has been just pounding into our minds this truth you can have salvation you can be declared righteous by God and God will be just in declaring you righteous if you do one thing put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross If you'll put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross, you receive justification. And and here's this wild verse. And again, I'm going to say some things today. If you're pretty well versed in your church and religion, and you kind of know your Bible pretty good, but you're not really up to speed on Romans, I'm going to say some things today that you're going to scratch your head and go, I don't know that I really... And uh, Go to the tapes, that's all I'll ask you. Go to the previous messages. Because I'm just going to say them. Hey, I didn't, I didn't say Romans 6.14. Paul did. Once you were justified by faith in Christ, that's all. You know what he says? We are freed from the law. We are delivered. We are no longer under the law. And we kind of delved into that. And we kept digging and digging. And we just let the Bible say what it says. We, verse number 14, says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law. We're not under law. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We have what's called liberty in Christ. And our liberty in Christ is so strong that once I became a Christian at age 9, nothing I ever do, nothing I ever do can cost me that salvation. I can never lose salvation. Now Paul knows what that does in some people's minds. Well, if that's the case, then we can live this way. And they, they hear that, but they interpret it in their brain as a license to sin. And so Paul in chapter 6 says license to sin does not exist because a true Christian can and never, not saying he won't commit acts of sin. There's an act of sin. Oh, there's an act of sin. There's a thought. There's an attitude. Yes, that still happens. But they cannot have as an unbroken pattern, lifestyle, habitual lifestyle of sin. It's impossible because we are dead to sin. It's no longer our master. Paul pointed out, license to sin, if that's your conclusion, you reach the wrong conclusion. We have liberty in Christ. Our salvation can never be lost no matter what we do. And then he spent chapter 6 telling us how to have real victory over sin. He hits three words again and again, three ideas. Here it comes. So how do I have victory over my sin? 
starts with knowing that once you became a Christian, sin is no longer your master. It is not your boss. But the second one is just as important as the first. Say, we can have good theology this morning and know, right, Romans 6, sin's not my master. I'm dead to it. It's, it's, it, it doesn't have power over me anymore. It, it still wants to have power, but I don't have to give in like before I was saved. In my unsaved condition, I, I just yielded all the time. I always lost. Now I don't have to lose. Great, you have good theology. Your knowing is good. But it's not until Monday morning. When that sin pops you in the face, at that moment, you better consider it. Don't just, oh, I have it in my head. No, realize it, believe it's true, and then get the victory. And then he says a third thing is, be busy presenting your body as instruments of righteousness to fulfill God's work. Be busy presenting your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your mind, your hands, your feet. Be so busy serving God to have fruit of righteousness that you don't have time to be losing the battle against sin. Knowing, considering, presenting. And he kept hammering that in chapter 6. That's the right way to victory. Chapter 7, remember this? It's the wrong way to victory. You say, what's the wrong way to victory? Legalism. I'm going to repeat what I said a couple of weeks ago because I know even when I typed it, I, I struggled with it. Legalism is a belief. It's a subtle usually, but it's a belief. Check yourself this morning. Legalism is a belief that we become holy or put ourselves in God's favor by keeping religious laws. And we hear that and we say, wait a minute, that's how, that is how you become holy. You learn what the law says and this is the nature of God and these are the do's and the don'ts. You learn those and, and then that's how you become holy. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's not how you become holy. So how in the world do you become holy? How in the world do you put yourself in God's favor? Let me first of all say, you don't put yourself in God's favor. It's a favor. If you did it, if you put yourself there, then it isn't a favor. It's not a gift. So those are just gifts. You say, how do I become holy? I'll read again. Holiness is when Christ... In me aligns my body. Oh yeah, that's what the law focuses on, the externals. But real holiness is when Christ in me, his Holy Spirit, aligns my body, soul, and spirit to please God with my whole being, my whole person. Here's the key, out of love. Love for God, love for man. That idea of holiness doesn't settle for an external checklist that looks at the outside of the body's actions only. Holiness doesn't settle for that wimpy little checklist religion. Read my chapters, had my X amount of minutes, went to church this week, gave a percentage. I'm holy. You did it out of duty. That's law. Romans chapter 7. Again, I'm not going to reread. I'm going to encapsulate the first six verses because it's going to kickstart us to verse 7 in just a moment. Verses 1 through 6 were kind of tricky. Boy, this is going to be tough. Okay, how to say this quickly. You were born married to the law. You were born married to the law. That means you were under its authority. You're married to it. And according to the laws of marriage, you can't get out of a marriage until one of you dies. But the text goes on and says... That we can actually be released from our marriage to the law. By the way, that marriage to the law only produced sin. You say, the law of God married to me. What was our offspring? Me and you sinning and sinning and sinning. And you're hearing that and you're saying, man, that sounds like you're saying some really bad things about God's word. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what God's word says about God's word. 
The Word of God, the law of God, married to you, produces all this sin. So we need to be released from that. But we can't just say, hey, God, time out. I don't want to be married to the law anymore. I don't want to stand to be judged by the law. I'm opting out irreconcilable differences. We don't get along. You can't do that. So somebody has to die. But the good news is this. Real theological, real mysterious, but here's the fact. When Jesus died on the cross, if you put your faith in Jesus, it counts as if you died in him on the cross. And when you died, you are now freed. Remember, when somebody dies, the husband or the wife dies, you're no longer bound to that. You could be married to another person. So I, in 1979, died in Christ who died 2,000 years ago. And because I died to the law, not only will I now not go to heaven, I was free to now get married a second time to a new husband, Jesus, who is a way better husband to me than the law was. I'm not saying anything bad about the law, by the way. I'm just telling it like it is. So we get released from the law. I'll not read the text, but I'm I'm heading toward verse 7. The last things we heard about the law were two or three. Our marriage, the law to us, produced sin. We need to be released from our marriage to the law. We need to die in Christ to be released. It's something to be released from. You need to get away from that relationship with the law. And then we learn in chapter 7, verse number 6, actually keeping the law hinders a person from living in the Spirit. They'll actually not fulfill God's pleasure out of love by the Holy Spirit working inside as long as you're attached to a mentality that says I'm basing, I'm I'm focusing on the externals and my checklist. No, the law hinders you from walking in the Spirit. So we put all that together. Wait, the law marries me, causes sin. The law even arouses sin. We're going to talk more about that. The law arouses sin in me. Me married to the law produces sin. I need to be released from the law. The law hinders spirit-filled living. Well, this law thing must be pretty bad. God's law is a bad, evil thing, I guess. Paul can hear his accusers. Now, with that in the background, let's read verse 7. 7 to 13. What then shall we say? What then? What are we going to say to all this? That the law is sin? Is that what you think I've been saying, Paul's asking? Are we going to say the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet, Paul said... Am I telling you all this to say the law is sin? I'm telling you this to say I wouldn't even know what sin is. Let me give you an example. I wouldn't even know it was wrong to covet if the law hadn't said coveting sin. So the problem is not the law. Verse 8. Here's the problem. But sin. I could add our sin. Here's the problem. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So we have the law in general, we have these specific commandments. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me. Sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now he's going to go back and forth. You're going to sound, man, he sounds like he's for the law, and now he's against the law. He's saying good things about the law, and now he's saying bad things about the law. He's just telling us the facts. Again, I didn't write this. The end of verse 8, look at it. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's a hard one. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, 10, 11 is very confusing. When does this time period in Paul's life? 
He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. When did sin come alive? When the commandment came. Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, hey, here's the laws of God. Hey guys, look, we got the laws of God. Great, we'll learn them. Those are the do's and those are the don'ts. And as long as we obey those things, we get to go to heaven. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He loves this phrase. He gives it again the second time. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So here's his conclusion, verse 12 and 13. So the law, in answer to the question, verse 7, is the law sin? No, no, come on. Verse 12, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Is it its fault? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. He's already said what is good is the law. So it's sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's why God gave us the law. Hey, Paul, your teaching seems to be making it sound like the law is sinful. There's fault with the law. It's the problem. Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me give you four reasons why God gave us the law. Number one, if you want to write it down. comes out of verse 7. The law exposes sin. This is a good thing. The law exposes sin. Verse number 7 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Hey, come on, Paul. Since my marriage to the law produces sin as offspring, isn't the law partly responsible? No. Here's one of those times I'm going to say something. Sin was not a bad husband to us. It was just an incompatible husband for us. Our sin nature, married to the law, brings in the toxic element that ends up leading to sin. But make no mistake, the law is good. See, I used to do some basketball coaching. And I remember several years we'd have some teams that were better than others. And usually what would happen is these guys would come in all hungry, man. Frankly, if you love soccer, I'm sorry. But they'd start coming to me like a month. Can we go ahead and start basketball practice? No, 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 dude. Got to finish soccer season. Can't touch you. Can't touch you. I've got several students who have played on my teams. And so they'd be ready to go. Man, we'd come out doing all the drills and working all the plays and everything's going good and they're just growing and growing, getting better and better in the preseason. All of a sudden, the early part of the season comes along and I've had teams just whip through the preseason, go win a tournament down in Georgia, go win this thing over there and all of a sudden, they're undefeated seven, eight, nine in a row and you can see it in practice. All of a sudden, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Practice is getting a little slack, not putting forth the effort like they once did. But here's the problem. I know the schedule's backloaded, and the real teams we're going to have to beat are at the end, and they're a lot better than the ones we've played so far. And you guys, the way you're playing right now, you're not good enough. But they think they are. So you know what I'd do? I'd go get some former players. Hey, can you come by the gym such and such a night? Yeah. Can you put together a pretty good little team? And i tell them, hey, wax these guys. What's that, coach? Wax the fire out of these boys. Just lay up, lay up, drill them, box them out so hard. They, don't, they, they think they're getting rebounds. They're just taller than somebody right now. Or they're out jumping somebody. Well, it's not going to be that way when we play the team from Greenville, right? Knock them into the wall. And these boys come in and boom. 
It was great. Because they had to realize, you have so many flaws, you don't even know it because you've been beating up on each other and you've been beating up on little bitty teams. You're going to play some better teams. You better learn your flaws now. What was bad is when the current team would actually sometimes beat the guys I'd bring in. It's like, oh, brother, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to expose their faults and their issues. You remember Amazing Grace? You know one of the best lines in Amazing Grace? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. I know there's somebody that's probably thinking, man, I'll be glad when we get out of Romans because Jeff just keeps on talking. Romans, he just keeps preaching about sin and death and hell and sin and death and hell and Man, it gets, kind of gets depressing. He might actually shake somebody up and they might get fearful and they might not want to keep coming back. And can I tell you something? The best thing God can do for us is to show us our sin problem. We have to see. We need to be rid of sin, but we're not going to get rid of sin if we don't see our sin. Lord, help us today. I've, I've literally been praying this. God, would you please, the person who's here this morning who has yet to really see their sin as sinful beyond measure, would you let them see it today? It's the purpose of the law. Now look again at verse 7. Is the law sin? By no means. That if it had not been for the law, would not have known sin. And then Paul says, I'm going to give you an example. In fact, he uses the example that worked in his life. I really believe Paul's given us an inside view of his heart and his life. Paul, which one really shook you up? And he brings in the Tenth Commandment. I don't know if you've ever done the Ten Commandments and really looked at them. But basically, here's what happens. We get beat up and beat up and beat up. Man, there's number one, number two, number three, number four. We're just getting beat up by the commandments. And if there was any hope of goodness left in you, number ten just totally wipes us all out. When the Bible says, don't covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's donkey and ox, Translation, his tractor, his truck, his car, his boat. You're like, who doesn't do that? Don't, don't covet and desire his gifts, his talents. Everybody does. Yeah, if you thought there was any goodness in you, if you made it somehow through, lying to yourself, you made it through one through nine, number ten just destroys us. We have no chance against number ten. I want to give you two reasons why I believe Paul gave us This one on coveting. Of all the ten that he could have used, he pulls out coveting and focuses on it. Number one, I believe it's the reason why. Because coveting leads us to break the other commandments. Taste this. A few weeks ago I said, if we only had love and we did not have the ten commandments, we really wouldn't need the ten commandments because we would fulfill them. If we only had love. Problem is, we don't have love. So we make this deduction. Love fulfills all the law, but selfish desire breaks all the laws. Paul, why are you focusing on coveting? Because it's wanting other gods that breaks the first commandment. And we like gods we can see. I like a god I can kind of imagine or maybe even draw a picture of. So I, I, I want this. Yeah, that you want that and I do too. I want to sound tough on the job. So yeah, we want to take God's name in vain. Or, my anger has been used so many times, I'm like the boy that's cried wolf. I I really need to show the family, I'm really angry this time, and so I'm going to take God's name in vain. I desire them to know, yeah, your selfish desire. Hey, I want to make a little more money, so we just blow right past God's rest. I want my way. I don't want mom and dad's way. 
I want my things and this person's impeding that. And so I want them dead. I'm tired of this relationship I'm in. I want that person's relationship. I want that item. I want to be seen as good and so I'm going to lie. Covet, 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 covet. You starting to see? Paul, why are you using this one? Because it leads to the breaking of all the other ones. And I believe the second reason he gives this one is because it exposes the whole category of sins of the heart. There's a whole category of sins of the heart. Coveting unfolds it. Perhaps better than any of the other ten. Other than number one. Let your eyes, it's not uh, part of our text today, but would you look at verse 14? Just the first part. For we know that the law is spiritual and the law is spiritual. Think with me. Adultery has taken place. There's an act of adultery. Catch what I'm about to say. The law of God not only has an issue with the act of adultery, but because the law is spiritual, the law has an issue with the lust that led to the act of adultery. Someone punched or slapped someone else. Shouldn't have done that. But the law doesn't only have a problem with hitting and slapping someone. It has a problem. It points out the hatred that led to that. Not just, yeah, somebody loves to tell lies, but it's the deception in the heart that the law really has issued before it ever gets to that. The law is spiritual. Over here, someone who steals things, and the law says, the problem is you envy what you don't have. And it exposes us. That's what the law does. The law is spiritual. Here's the key. Whether those things, I just gave you a list, lust, hatred, envy, deception, whether those things ever come out. You say, well, they actually did it. Yeah, we spot them and we judge them really hard. But it's in us. And whether, whether, whether it ever comes out or not, the law judges it in us and says, here's the problem. It's internal. It's spiritual. Hold your spot. Luke 18. Would you flip back over there? This is one of those texts we could get lost in this morning. We're not going to. We're going to fight that urge. Luke 18. Luke 18. It's the rich ruler. Luke 18, I'm really just trying to make one point, so I'm going to try not to get too lost in the whole story. This really happened, a ruler, whether it be one of the Sanhedrin, a national ruler, the national court in Jerusalem, or a synagogue leader in one of the cities scattered throughout Israel. Bottom line, this man's powerful, he's apparently wealthy, And so a ruler asked Jesus, he asked him, here's this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not a bad question. He's not saying, what do I have to do to obtain or earn? How can I inherit eternal life? How can I have that given to me? Jesus said to him, first of all, this is key, why did you call me good? Again, I want to get bogged down, but I'm not going to. No one's good except God. This is debatable. My opinion is Jesus is not telling this man, don't call me good. He's saying is you need to know something. Only God is good and you just called me good. I'm not correcting you. I'm just saying I hope you know who you're talking to. Because this is going to be key. So you have this question. So verse 20, Jesus answers the man's question. You know the commandments? You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Jesus does a little exchange with him. To test his heart. Jesus is not saying in verse 20, if you do these things, you'll earn your way to heaven. We know we're all sinners. We're born in sin and we commit acts of sin. That's two separate things. Verse 20. He says, again, he wants to pull the truth out of this man. So he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. 
Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You know those things. And he said, can you believe the guy actually said, and apparently because he's talking to Jesus, he really believes this. He says, all these things I've kept from my youth. I've done all those things. Jesus knows he hasn't, and so he's going to expose something. I believe this is what's happening. Why'd you call me good? Only God is good. I'm God. So what you're telling me is when God gives laws and commands, you always obey them? Basically, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I've done that from my youth. Okay, great. I, as God, am going to give you one little thing to do. Apparently, you do it all your life, so you'll have no problem with this one. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Okay, so you've done the others, all right? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. All that you have, you have it, go sell it, and then give those proceeds to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here's a man who says, I've done all the externals. I've never killed. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I don't lie. I honor my father and my mother. Anything else? Yeah, okay, apparently if you think you do everything, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. What did he use? Coveting. You don't do what God says because at your core, you're just a selfish, you're a first-rate sinner like everybody else. You'll not do this. And the man was sorrowful and sad, and he walked away, and he didn't obey what God told him to do. Back to Romans. Chapter number 7, the second thing the law does, not only does the law expose our sin, and we need our sin exposed This is strange. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. This is a strange one. This doesn't set right in our theological minds. Verse number 8 tells us the law actually arouses our sin. Not only does the law reveal we have a sin problem, the law actually stirs up our sin problem. And we hear that and we say, that just sounds so odd. Guys, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God hates sin so much, he's not afraid of it, but he hates it so much, he will actually arouse sin, stir it up to expose it so it can be dealt with. God will have even more sin brought in in order to have sin dealt with. Here comes one of those statements. You might not like it when I say it, but here it comes. The law is good, but the law definitely makes sin worse. Yes, I said it. The law, the law of God, definitely makes sin worse. And we hear that we say, how? Verse number 8. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin, watch this, picture in your mind three little boys. They're going fishing, right? Picture three little boys. And there's a creek. And the creek's maybe as wide as, not quite as wide as this stage. A little wider than this, right? And they're kind of tired of fishing on that side of the creek. I actually experienced this back in May. I was on this side of the creek, and I wanted to be on that side of the creek. But there was no bridge, and I didn't want to get wet. So here I was, or picture these three little boys. They're on this side of the creek. They want to get to that side. And finally, one of the little boys said, hey, guys. Over here, I found a way. What you got? A tree has fallen. And so there's a tree from this side to that side, and it's a way. Hey, we can get to the other side through the tree. The tree is our method. You say, that's great. It's a great little story. I can actually picture it. What in the world does I have to do with? The three little boys represent sin. The other side represents you, your natural body, minding your own business. You say, then what in the world is this tree? What's the tree? The law. Sin, our sin is so bad, it will actually use the law as a way 
to get over there and affect us and pull us down and stir up and arouse our sin. You have a quote from John MacArthur. Let's fill it out. How does sin use the law? MacArthur says, confronted by God's law, the sinner's rebellious nature finds the forbidden thing. There's God's law. Don't do that. Our rebellious nature, the sinner's rebellious nature, finds the forbidden thing more attractive. More attractive now. Not always because it is inherently attractive. Remember that line. Not because it's always inherently attractive. Oh, it's just beautiful. God takes all the beautiful things in life and makes them off limits. No, he doesn't. Remember, he gave Adam and Eve all the garden and he picked one thing. Don't do this one thing. And he says the forbidden thing becomes more attractive. Not always because it's inherently attractive, but because it furnishes an opportunity to assert one's self-will. Is this not what the author was trying to tell us through Uncle Remus' story? Remember that? Was it Burr Fox finally caught Burr Rabbit? And he's going to let him have it. I could eat you. I could boil you. You're getting ready to have it. I finally got my hands on you. I've got you bound up. And what does Br'er Rabbit say? Whatever you do, eat me fine. Boil me, that's fine. But whatever you do, don't, what? Don't throw me in that there briar patch. Well, you know what I think Uncle Remus and the author is basically playing on is our sinful, rebellious human nature. Whatever you do, do not Throw me in that there briar patch. Anything but that. Oh, yeah? You telling me I can't throw you? I'm telling you don't throw me in the briar patch. That's it, buddy. You're in the briar patch. Right where he wanted to go the whole time. That's our sin nature. Don't tell me what to do, God. Hey, how many young ladies have taken up with bad boy, literally filthy, I don't mean just figuratively filthy, I mean like really grungy, dirty guys? Not because she likes grungy, dirty, filthy, bad boy guys, but you're exactly the kind of guy my parents hate, and so I'm going to date you. You ever seen that? Some of you remember a time in your life like, oh, I remember that stage. I, just, I didn't even like him, but boy, my parents couldn't stand him, and that meant I had to be with him. Run this a test sometime. Go paint the rails, paint the rails green, do a big sign, wet paint, normal font, and then put real big, do not touch. And then sit back and watch how many people have green fingers. Whatever you do, do not, comma, I mean do not touch the rails. The paint is wet. What's on your hand? Oh, there's just some paint back there. Yeah, that's what I thought. Rebel. You're a rebel. Hey, have you ever seen this? Some of your parents, you've seen this. Your kid will go work like a dog at someone else's house out in their yard. But to do the same thing at your place is like pulling teeth. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because they have a buddy and maybe it's a different venue and it's just a different environment. But underneath it all, you know what it is? You are telling me to do it at the house. I don't want to do it at the house. I don't mind the work. I'll go sweat and slave over at their house because I like to. But when you tell me I have to, I now don't want to do it. Verse 8, one last thing from this. Look at it. This hard phrase at the end, before we look at the third thing the law does, Paul says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's a tough one. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Jeff, what do you think that is? I'm going to throw out the two things, frankly, I believe are just summarizing verse 7 and 8. I think it's the first two points. I believe this is what that means. 
apart from the law, sin lies dead. Two possible thoughts. Number one, some sin was undefined until the law came. It was just undefined. It was sin. It just wasn't defined until the law came. I'm going to have a hard time getting this one across. If I can use this. You ready? It is always sinful to live loveless, selfish, careless. It's always sin to live loveless, selfish, and careless. It's always sin. But do you realize there's no way the Bible, without being like a hundred foot thick, could put all the ways that we live loveless, selfish, and carelessly? So it's not defined. It gives us some things, but as we go through life, the Holy Spirit will lead us. The Bible doesn't even say, just don't do that. that. That's loveless. That's careless. That's selfish. Don't do that. Do you know that 120 years ago, people didn't get traffic tickets? Why? Didn't have cars. So they have cars, and all of a sudden, people start realizing, I don't know how it went down, I haven't researched it, but I'm sure at some point they realize, hey, we keep running into each other. Why don't you, and here in America, we decided, why don't you go on that side, and I'll go to this, so you guys all drive on the right side, and I'll drive on my right side. And we got these lanes now. So we have laws. And so if I get over into your lane, and I'm going loveless and careless and selfishly, I'm putting your life in danger, I'm going to get a ticket. And then we have speed limit. You can't drive that fast. How fast? Uh... That fast. Don't do that anymore. Hey, you can't drink that and drive. You can't drive and text and they just keep coming and coming. Why? Because the law is getting more and more defined. So that's what God's law does. It defines sin. But if you want to write it down, the second thing it does, some sin actually existed but it lied dormant. That's what I believe the Bible is saying there when it's saying it's not dead like non-existent. The sin was there, but it was lying dormant until the law of God actually came and stirred it up. I want you to picture an old house out in the woods, kind of cabiny, and it's got the, the, the frames and the windows. It's got metal framing, and the windows are very just kind of cloudy and foggy, and you can't see real well. But you look inside, and things look well enough. But what you don't know is there's like a quarter of an inch of dust all over everything inside. You say, great, what somebody needs to do is go in there with a good broom and start brooming all the dust. No, they don't. You say, someone should get maybe a leaf blower and go in there and start blowing all the dust out the door. No. What you really want is a vacuum, right? Because the leaf blower would just swell it up. That's what God's law does. Do y'all realize God gave us the law? So that it would actually take the sin. Hey, I'm not that bad of a person. Until you're told, don't do that and you must do that. And then we rebel and it stirs up. And it flares up and the dust is everywhere. And it's filling the room and all of a sudden, I'm not as holy and righteous as I thought I was. Because until then, maybe we're going along, coasting along thinking, I'm good enough to go to heaven. And then the law comes and it stirs up sin. And I'm not as good. I'm not as as holy and righteous as I thought I was. I wonder how many people have gone to the doctor with a pain of a lesser symptom and thank goodness they had that pain. You say, pain's never good. No, pain is sometimes good because that pain made you go to the doctor and they said, well, this is actually what's causing that. But while you're here, here's what we found out. And there's something much bigger underlying and they caught it just in time. The law stirs up sin. And you've got to catch it just in time. The third thing the law does is in verses 9, 10, and 11. The law leads to death. The law leads to death, and this one's also pretty tricky. I'm not going to get sidetracked here, but I want you to look at verse number 9. I'll throw it out. Okay, I'm going to throw it out. I'm not going to die for this one. 
I do believe this, what I'm about to say. This may come into play. Uh, I don't have huge evidence. I have a few clues. I don't know that the Bible is just rock solid, comes out and makes it clear. I believe this. It could be a secondary interpretation of verse number 9, possibly. Look at it. Paul says, I was, alive, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I'll throw it out. Is there a chance Paul's talking about an age of accountability? Possibly. So maybe you're like, age of accountability, what in the world does that mean? I don't believe an age of accountability means there's a specific hard age. This person is this many years and 364 days old. And one more day when they turn that many years, all of a sudden now they better get saved or they'll go to hell. Because before that, when it was only 364 days plus X amount of years, they were under an age of accountability. And had they died, they wouldn't go to hell. But now they will. I don't think it's a magic age. I mean, look at it again. Paul's saying, I was alive I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I think what really happens, if this is defendable, this age of accountability, is God determines a point in each person's life when you're aware. You're aware of Him and His holiness and you and your sinfulness, and you are now responsible to call out to Him to save you. Say, Jeff, do you believe in an age of accountability? I do. Some things here and there. Possibly this text. I'm going to tell you what I believe is the primary interpretation of verse 9. That might be secondary. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about. I think it's more likely Paul's talking about something else. Look at verse 9 again. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law leads to death. So, Jeff, what do you think is happening in verse 9? I don't know when this time period is, but I believe what Paul is describing is his formerly proud impressions of his life as a Pharisee. I believe there was a time where Paul really thought highly, I know he did, he thought highly of his externals, and then all of a sudden the law came in, and he starts seeing things like coveting and the internal demands of the law, and he sees himself against that, and he realizes, even as good as my externals are, I can't measure up against that. I am lost. I'm desperately in need. I believe that a man named Stephen, who was one of the great theologians of the New Testament that we don't really give credit to because he had such a short life, I believe Stephen was teaching this in the synagogues, and Paul the Pharisee, I'm sorry, Saul of Tarsus, before his name changed he goes into the synagogues and he tries to debate Stephen but he always loses and eventually Saul will help have Stephen stoned and I believe some of the things Stephen was saying was starting to ring true in Paul's mind the law is spiritual I, I, I do the externals better than anyone but it's not enough it's not enough hold your spot here if you would let's go to one more passage Philippians 3 I think what Paul's describing in verse 9, 10, 11 is actually what he's talking about in Philippians 3. This is important. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. The Jews called us Gentile dogs, but now he's turning it back and saying, Hey, watch out for these. How will we know they're the dogs? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are the people who emphasize externals as a way of heaven. And in their case, they emphasize circumcision. And Paul says, For we are the circumcision. And we could really say what Paul's saying there. We're the true circumcision. Yes, they cut away the foreskin of the male anatomy outwardly, physically. But we've had the foreskin of our dirty hearts cut away by Christ's death on the cross. And once that's been cut away, we've been given Christ's righteousness. We're the true circumcision. Watch out for them. They're the phonies. 
Verse 3, we are the circumcision. How do you know us versus them? We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They glory in their pedigree and their accomplishments. We glory in what Christ did. I didn't do anything. He did it all. And they're over there saying, yeah, but I'm a, I was baptized. I go to a Baptist church. I'm a member. I give money. I read my Bible. I pray. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. You only get to heaven by putting your faith in Christ. Verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. Paul says, you want to play the external accomplishments game? Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons, reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You want to you make a list? Paul gives seven things. Watch. He says, I circumcised the eighth day, exactly as the Old Testament called for. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. Are you a Jew? I'm a Jew. He goes further. In fact, I know I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Our first king came from my tribe. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's debated. My mom's a Hebrew. My dad's a Hebrew. And I know the Hebrew language, the one that's about out of out of work most people didn't speak the Hebrew language at that time Paul knew it as touching the law he says you want to know about the law he says I'm a Pharisee I know the Old Testament backwards and forward probably could quote most of it in fact I know all the laws that we put in that are extra on top of that we call the traditions I know the law I know the traditions I know them I'm a Pharisee there are only 6,000 of us I'm one of them are you one of them no we're not one of them I am verse 6 but are you zealous Paul oh yeah how zealous as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I'm so zealous that I thought the Christians were harming the name of God and I would hunt them down. I was that zealous. But did you actually keep the law? He says, as to righteousness under the law, me, blameless. He's not saying sinless. He's saying, you follow me around, you'll not find something. You'll not find it. Now, you can't see my heart. And back in Romans, he says, coveting exposed him. This is so key. Paul just listed seven things in his good column. Three of them were done for him, four of them were he's done himself through training and working hard to be a righteous man. And in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Catch it? I got these said, why, why are you going to heaven? That, that's not going to work. You know why I thought I was going to heaven? Because I was born this way, circumcised this time. I'm this kind of a Pharisee. I know the law. I outwardly keep the law. I am zealous. I'm of this tribe. I know the language. I'm all about it. These are my credentials. But he says, I actually now count those as losses. No, those are your pluses. Those are your gains. No, I'm putting them on the loss column. In fact, it gets stronger. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, here it comes, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness. Hey, everybody right here, check yourself with verse 9. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, where I work hard enough and keep the law, he says, I realize that is no righteousness. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Go back with your eyes. Look at verse 8. See the word rubbish? Here's what Paul says. Not only do I not count these seven things as my gains anymore, I count them as lost. They're in the lost column, but they're actually rubbish. Not just neutral. Oh, they didn't help you, Paul. No, they're worse. They're worse than neutral. They're losses. Why? Because I know I almost went to hell believing in these things were in my good column. 
Any Jew of that day would say, Paul, I'd love to have your pedigree. Paul would say, you can have it because it did me no good. I almost went to hell believing in my pedigree. I'm going to make another statement. It's going to rock some of you and you're going to, you're going to wrestle with it. This one's a tough one. I believe. By the way, please don't walk away and say, that guy at Graceview is promoting sin. I promise I'm not. But in a strange way, here comes, I believe in the eternal view, it is better to live a vile life that strips you of spiritual pride than to live a relatively moral life that deceives you into thinking you are somehow good enough for God to surely let go to heaven. I'll say it again. I believe it is better for a person in the end. You say, Jeff, you're promoting sin. No, I'm not. Best case scenario, you get saved as a little child because you believe the word of God. I'm a sinner. Jesus died on the cross and you get saved early and the Holy Spirit comes in and you have a life of sanctification before you ever wallow in sin. But all I'm saying, of these two choices, here's a person who lives a vile, wicked, sinful life and they know they have no spiritual credits. That is better if it leaves you feeling spiritually empty and desperate than this person over here who lived a relatively moral good life and they go out of this world thinking, I surely did good enough. God, you notice I'm better than that guy and they wind up in hell. It's about the end game. This one's better because this person is trusting their good works. That's what Paul is saying. It's rubbish. It's not just neutral, it's negative. I almost went to hell believing that. It's the supposedly good swimmer who doesn't wear the vest, right? I don't need that. Hey, y'all might want to vest up. See you doing? Going out on the boat. Or what about you? I'm a good swimmer. That's the ones who drown. You know what Paul's saying? Yeah, it's just call it honest. Listen, my life as a Pharisee, yeah, it was better than theirs and theirs and theirs. It was. But it's so far short of the perfection you have to have. It's not good enough. I did the best that you could do, and it came up way short. So I'm asking everybody here this morning, what day was it? I don't care if you raised your hand literally 300 times. Oh, I'm a Christian. Heads bowed, eyes closed. 300 times you've raised your hand. I don't care if you've done it 500 times. Here's my question. What was the day you realized you weren't good enough? What day was it? For me, I was nine years old. Romans 7. Verses 12 and 13. The law points to our need of Christ. The law points to our need of Christ. Paul, is the law sin? Is the law evil? I mean, come on. Verse 12, he says, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Our words are a reflection of us. A, word, a person's words are a reflection of themselves. Since God is holy, God is righteous. God is just, so are his words and his laws. So the problem is not with the law of God. But again, we step back and we say, come on, Paul. Verse number 13 says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Come on, Jeff, let's review. The law exposes our sin. The law stirs up our sin. Us married to the law brings about sin. The law leads us to death. Surely we're better off not even having any contact with the law. We don't need the law. The law would be better out of our lives. Right, Jeff? No, no, no. We need the law to expose our cancerous sin. We need the law to show us how much we desperately need a Savior. God, I'm not good enough. 
Have you ever been there? I close with the last phrase there in verse 13. Is that which is good then death bring death to me? Did the law actually literally in the final analysis, is the law what brought death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Remember the log, the tree? Sin used that to get to me. And I was a very willing recipient. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. I'm a sinner. But watch, it doesn't stop there. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Hear me well this morning. Those three words, sinful, beyond, measure, describe you. Sinful, beyond, measure. Sinful beyond measure in what you've already done. Sinful beyond measure in what you are capable of doing. You may never do it, but you're capable of it. Why? Because we are sinful. You say, how sinful are we beyond measure? Guys, we're so sinful, we can take something as good as, and holy and righteous as the law of God and use it as an opportunity to sin. That's how sinful we are. We can take even God's word and use it for sin. We're sinful beyond measure. And here's what I find. A lot of unsaved people reach this point in a message And in their heart and their mind, they'll readily acknowledge, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But they don't see themselves as desperately sinful. Beyond measure. So how would I know if that's me? Are you sitting here this morning, you've never put your faith in Christ. At the end of the day, you've heard it. You know you should, maybe plan on it one day, but you've not done it. And here's your reasoning. My lies are little white lies. Their lies are bad lies. Their lies are black. My sin, not good, but surely it's not bad enough for God to send me to hell. God will not send me to hell for my stuff. You've not yet realized you're sinful beyond measure. You can't be saved that way. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to read a verse in James Chapter 2, I believe it is. Listen to what the Bible says. Hear it. Listen. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Say it again. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You say, Jeff, Christians, soul winners here this morning. Jeff, how much of the law should we preach? Enough for a person to realize they are sinful beyond measure. So I'm going to ask you right now. Have you ever lied? Don't answer out loud. Answer inside your head. Yes or no? These are all yes or no questions. Answer them in your head. Take a quick quiz. Have you ever lied? Have you ever blasphemed the name of God, the third commandment? Have you ever said, the Lord, God, Jesus Christ, yeah, but I didn't mean it. That's what in vain means. Have you ever one day, well, just when I was a kid, that counts. The Bible says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, it's like a chain. You just broke one link, has become accountable for all of it. And you look at someone else and say, they break all of it. They're terrible. You broke one thing, you're accountable as if you broke all of it. Question, have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever lusted. See, I didn't act on it. Have you ever lusted? Have you ever coveted what God gave to someone else and he didn't give to you? Have you ever coveted? Did you take the quiz? 
You know what you made? Say, I made a hundred. No, you made a zero. Because your answers were yes, 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 and yes. If you've never been saved today, you need to be saved. The law exposes you. Say, I've done all of those things. The law exposes our sin. The law arouses and stirs up our sin so that we'll see it's much worse than we thought. The law leads us to death. God will be justified when he sends us to hell if we reject Jesus Christ. But the law is pointing you. You're not good enough. You must have a Savior. And Jesus is sufficient. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? I don't know what your opinion is of yourself. But I know the one person whose opinion matters. And that's God. Listen carefully. God has clearly said of all of us that we, you and I, you, are sinful beyond measure. Hear that this morning. Sinful of ourselves, apart from Christ, we are sinful beyond measure. But God gave the remedy in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me? God, I've already asked you. I'm asking you again. Lord, I'm talking directly to you. You know every heart here this morning. Lord, you know what's on our minds right now, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will arrest our thoughts, bring them into focus. Lord, I pray for the Christian that is here this morning that has permanently escaped punishment for their sin in eternity. But Lord, sin is in their life totally breaking fellowship. Lord, would your Holy Spirit right now begin pointing out their sin. And then Lord, for the person who's here, maybe one person. Lord, they've never really seen their sin I pray that you will allow them right now to put themselves just beside the Ten Commandments, just the Tenth Commandment. Lord, show us that even our selfish desire, whether it's ever fulfilled or not, the desire to sin is sin. And we have a lot of it. So, Lord, I pray that you would convict, please, Holy Spirit, convict the person who's yet to put their faith in Christ. And then, Lord, would you give them faith to believe your promises and trust. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. I'm going to ask everyone. I don't do this every week. It's been a long time since I've done this. And because of the lighting, I can't see every hand, but I'm going to invite you, if you know for sure, say, I, Jeff, I know I'm a Christian. I'm not perfect. Sin comes into my life, but I know I've already trusted Jesus. I am trusting Jesus I know when I leave this world, I go to heaven by God's grace. I know that beyond a doubt. I don't struggle with it. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Just put it up and back down very quickly. Up and back down. Thank you. Can we ask it the other way? No one looking around, not even anybody singing. I'm going to ask no one singing, looking around, just me. Is there anybody here this morning? Say, Jeff, I don't know that I'm a Christian. Or, Jeff, I know I'm not a Christian. Either one of those. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I know I'm not a Christian. I see that hand. Anybody else? Anyone else? So getting right with God starts with acknowledging we're wrong with God. And it starts with acknowledging He's right about our sin. 
and we're sorrowful for our sin, but we believe in Christ. Anyone else? Got the courage? Don't just think it inside. It starts with confession. It is not confessing to me. But when conviction's real, you're not ashamed to acknowledge, I know I'm lost. Anyone else? One last time. Thank you. I'm going to invite you, sir, if you want. We could talk afterward. But I'm going to invite you right now to hear the promise of God and believe. Know this. God can't lie. Jeff, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because God can't lie. Here's what God's Word says, Romans 10, 13. Whosoever, that's you, you, sir, I know you, I love you, but God loves you so much more. The Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God can't lie. Acts 16, verse 31. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You will be saved. All you can do is believe. Don't try to be good enough. And if you have faith right now, I'm going to invite you. Right where you're sitting, to my right. Would you do this? Talk to God. He's real. Talk to, talk to Him. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to anyone else. And just talk directly to the Lord. God, you've shown me today I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sin. God, thank you for showing me my sin before it's too late. Talk to Him. Talk to Him. Tell Him, God, I don't want to go to hell. Tell him this, God, I believe you. You can't lie. You said if I believe in Jesus on the cross, what he did to pay for my sin, then you're going to let me go to heaven. And so God, right now, at this very moment, this day, this moment, I am believing what Jesus did on the cross and I'm asking you to save me from my sin right now. Will you please save me from my sin?